culture wars. I'm your host Alexandra Marshall and today we are joined by David Flint. Well it is lovely to have you here today David. Welcome to Curtain Call. Thank you. So basically on this show we like to go slightly behind the scenes with the people who are fighting the culture wars on our behalf. So can you tell us how you became involved in the constitutional monarchy and preserving this part of Australia's politics? Well, I've always been a supporter of the constitutional monarchy because I believe it's a, an essential check and balance in the constitutional system. Particularly when we decided at the time of federation that we would remain a constitutional monarchy. Not many people seem to know that. There was a proposal in 1891 that the governor generalship gradually become elective. And that would have changed the constitution very much because we would have become very much like the American constitution. The founders were very much influenced by the American constitution. You see that in the Senate, you see that in the House of Representatives, the way in which the powers expressed in the constitution. They made a very firm decision though that the governor generalship should not become, not ever become elective, and that the system which had come into England, into Britain, uh, probably by the time of Victoria, that is the Westminster system where the executive government, the, the factual executive government is responsible to the House of Commons, should be the system which should prevail in Australia. And that's the system we've essentially inherited, and I strongly supported that. I think they've made the right decision. For many people, monarchy is a theatre, it's theatrics. People are wrapped up in the gowns and the castles and the stories of the monarchy's lives. But it sounds like you were more interested in the politics of the monarchy. I certainly have always been interested in what it means for Australia's politics. Yes. The theatre of the monarchy is important, but in the 90s, there was a move in Australia, as you know, for Australia to be turned into a, a republic. And I thought that was premature. I thought that they were only concentrating on the superficialities. And I suspected that they were going to impose a republic which would not be an improvement on the existing system. So I went, uh, I said, well, who should I see about this? And I decided not to go to the Labour Party because Labour by then had decided that they would be a party for the Republic. And I went to see the, the then president of the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party, Peter King, 
who subsequently became the member for Wentworth and was subsequently removed from that by Malcolm Turnbull. And Peter King said uh, he agreed and we decided that there should be something done. He was going to contact me, but didn't. He got together a group of liberals, but then they woke up to the fact that you couldn't have something like Australian sort of constitutional monarchy only with liberals. You had to bring in Labour people. You had to bring in people to the left, people like Michael Kirby, for example, the judge, and Doug Sutherland, who was the Lord Mayor of Sydney, the Labour Lord Mayor of Sydney. And uh, to bring in people like that, Labour people who were constitutional monarchists, as were John Curtin and Ben Chifley, uh, you had to have a, a broader body. So that was formed. That was Australia's a constitutional monarchy. I got involved. And when my predecessor Lloyd Body was made a judge after the Constitutional Convention, they invited me to become national convener. So that's how I've become involved in Australians for Constitutional Monarchy. Well, I am a, a young ambassador for your Australians of Constitutional Monarchy. And when uh, I still remember the Republican debate because I was little when it happened. So I didn't particularly understand it, but I knew that I, I quite liked the monarchy and I came from the North Shore of Sydney. So we were very much in the pro-keeping the constitutional monarchy um, Australia camp, per se. But I have noticed uh, since growing up that the left have always been predominantly on the cause of the Republicans because they have connections to the union system, which have connections to the old collectivist communism, and they instinctively hate monarchies. But, of course, the monarchy of our constitutional monarchy is not the monarchies of Europe pre-revolutions. So would you like to, uh, like, do you think that there's a, a definite misunderstanding amongst the youth of today about historical monarchies, which their communist lecturers love to tell them is all terrible, and the monarchy which the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth of Australia has had uh, since uh, the complete reshuffling that uh, England went through when they deposed their monarch, killed them, changed parliament around and then changed all the laws. I mean, it's not the same thing at all constitutional monarchy as a traditional monarchy. You're exactly right. And what, what essentially happened in England was the struggle between Parliament and the Crown, the Crown being a very political crown under the Stuart Kings. And the big, the big division uh, towards the end of the Stuarts period was that uh, the Kings were trying to legislate themselves without going through Parliament, which offended the parliamentarians. Eventually, in, the, in 1688, the king was forced out of England. He fled from England and they invited Prince William of Orange and uh, the last Stuart king's daughter, Mary, to take the throne, but under certain conditions. And they agreed to what was called the Petition of Right or the Bills of Right, Bill, Bill of Rights. And that essentially meant an abandonment of the king being a separate legislator. The king was still the head of the executive, the political head of the executive, but you really got constitutional monarchy mark one. And these, these sovereigns were, from a European point of view, the weakest in Europe. They had less power. Sure. Yes, what I love about uh, European politics is what took all of Europe 200 years to trial with collectivism and, and uh, revolutions and failed republics 
uh, the UK sort of sorted out pretty fast. It was uh, was all done and, and dusted within, I think it was 10 years they were, they were, suited, they were sorted. You're right. In 1688, they then, in the Glorious Revolution, they established constitutional monarchy Mark I. Mark I meant that the king was the head of the executive. He obviously had to deal with parliament in choosing prime ministers, but essentially the prime minister had to have the confidence of the king. But as a practical matter, so if they were to get legislation through, budgets through, they also had to have support in the House of Commons. But after losing America, George III played a significant role in maintaining the war, in allowing the war to develop. Had George III had the vision, which uh, perhaps Elizabeth II has, he would have realized that he had a very loyal 13 colonies in America. We could have started the Commonwealth back at that time instead of the American War of Independence. But after losing the American colonies, which was touch and go in many stages, uh, gradually in England, as, as has happened with the English constitution, the convention developed that a government, a prime minister, had to have the confidence of the House of Commons. And if the House of Commons voted no confidence in the prime minister or the government, they had to resign. And that, that convention gradually became part of the constitutional system, which is what we have in Australia. That's a very good system, but it needs another check and balance. You no longer have the pure separation of powers into executive, legislative, and judicial the executive and the legislative are in bed together. As we see in Canberra, the government effectively controls the House of Commons because the House of Representatives, because the House of Representatives controls the government. So you don't have yes, that well, check and balance. Yes, and that's well, that's exactly by the king or the governor general. That's the problem. When you try to explain the importance of a constitutional monarchy to today's youth who don't understand systems of politics to begin with. You have to break it right back down to try and reach them with your argument. And the route I normally go is that the constitutional monarchy is the answer to civilization's most difficult question, which is how to moderate power. And, the, and you do that via the motivation behind the power being given out. So correct me if I'm wrong, and, and you are the expert on this, but I've always found that uh, when you've got the point of the crown is that their only power essentially, when it all boils down, is to hand power back to the people when their politicians get out of control. So essentially the crown doesn't write laws. The crown only returns a government to election if the government is deemed to be unpopular or acting unlawfully. And so if they make a mistake, then the parliament and the people could pull, push to remove the monarchy. So they don't have any motivation to do the wrong thing because their entire existence is basically to preserve democracy. But a Republican system does not have that check and balance. So it'd be like, I don't know, Christina Keneally being prime minister to Kevin Rudd. Would you would you trust that system? I, I don't think I would. I, I think you've put it very well. Uh, and I think what you're, what you're saying is sometimes summarizing that saying, that the crown is important, not for the power it wields, but the power it denies others. The Prime Minister has to go to the Governor-General 
to ask, for example, for a double dissolution for an election. He can't just declare an election himself. When appointments are made, they have to go through the Executive Council, where the Governor-General can hold something up or ask questions. For example, when, when uh, uh, regulations are being passed, these are, these are like laws, but they're adopted at the, the level of the Executive. Once they're, when they're submitted to the Executive Council, a good Governor-General or good Governor will ask whether he has the power to do what he is being advised to do. And if he has that power, whether there is a condition on the exercise of that power. And usually with the power to make regulations under a, an Act of Parliament, there are usually conditions on the exercise of that power. So the Governor-General has to be satisfied that if there are conditions, those have been fulfilled. And there are many examples. All of them, we just learn about them from memoirs, from, from talk by politicians, because all of these are done not in the public glare, but we see regularly the Crown exercising this, this check and balance on government. And this, in many ways, goes towards answering Acton's great warning. Lord Acton, the British historian, warned that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we have to devise a system of government which is efficient, but which also has checks and balances on power. And the, the model which emerged from the convention, there's a myth the Republic has put out that John Howard rigged the convention. He didn't, and rigged the choice of the model. The model was chosen by the Republic. He gave them a free hand to choose the model they wanted. And they came up with the most extraordinary Republic in history. It would have been the only Republic, not in the world, in history, in which it would have been easier for the Prime Minister to sack the President than his driver. He could sack the President without any notice, without any grounds, and without any right of appeal. The President would have been turned into the puppet of the Prime Minister, not like the Governor-General, who has his own independent authority. The President would have been just the puppet of the Prime Minister. That's why we decided vote no to the politicians republic because that's what it was yes well that's exactly the point people in this age say that they distrust politicians more than anybody else and they march in the streets saying how much they hate politicians and yet these same people the same activist group are the ones who wish to install politicians as the absolute overlords of australia with no checks and balances other than themselves and the reason they want to do that is because they subscribe to the collectivist model where they believe they will be the only government and that it will be only their people in charge. And so that's the vision they have for Australia, even if they don't admit to it. But we talked about uh, the, this re-emergence of a desire for a public, but I can't help but note that it's always the same group of people who wish to have a republic in the press. And it's the ones who were rejected politically by the people at elections. So you've got Kevin Rudd, you've got Malcolm Turnbull. These are the people who I'm sure want to have another crack at leadership, even though they were not successful before. 
I think you're absolutely right. And there, and within the parliament, there are these little parliamentary clubs at taxpayers' expense where they sit around debating how they're going to turn Australia to republic. They've got one in Canberra. It's called the uh, Parliamentary Friends of an Australian head of state. It's based on a lie. The lie is we don't already have an Australian as head of state. We've got an Australian as head of state, and that's the Governor General. And every Australian government, Labour or coalition, whenever the, the Governor General goes overseas on a state visit, they explain to other governments that the Governor General is the head of state and should be received as such. Head of state is just a diplomatic term. It's not a constitutional term. This is the big thing the Republicans use. In 1987, when uh, a Republican in our embassy, I suspect, in Jakarta, told President Suharto that Sunini and Stephen, the Governor General, wasn't our, our head of state. Suharto decided that he wouldn't be received as head of state. He wouldn't get the normal dignities, courtesies of the head of state. 21-gun salute, for example. Heads of state are entitled to that. Uh, Bob Hawke decided this was an insult to Australia and had the visit called off. The Indonesians realised that they'd been misled. They apologised, and next year the visit went ahead. Now, why do the Republicans say they, they live under this myth, this lie, because they should know? If they don't know, they shouldn't be in politics. They should know that the Governor-General is the Australian head of state. But they have these little groups, parliamentary groups. There's one in Macquarie Street, too, under Matt Keane. Matt Keane is the Minister for closing coal, coal, uh, coal mines in New South Wales. He's also the Minister for making electricity more expensive and more unreliable. And he's also the head of this little parliamentary group of Australians for uh, an Australian head of state. But it's a complete fiction, complete lie. Why do the Republicans do this? They do this because back in the 90s when they were arguing for a republic, they got more and more desperate in trying to give some sort of reason why we should spend millions and risk the constitution on changing into a politician's republic. And uh, they, they got so desperate that Al Grasby and Neville Rand, the Premier of New South Wales, were actually saying the Crown causes unemployment and if you get our Republic, it will significantly reduce unemployment. That, that obviously was pure fiction, as is the one about head of state. I've found in looking at uh, polling a question which involves do you want an Australian as head of state is worth a number of points in a vote. And that's why another reason why they're doing it. They want to mislead the Australian people. So they're a devious lot, the Republicans. What sort of republic they want is not clear. Paul Keating, when he was down at La Trobe University a couple of years ago, at the end of his speech, said that the very best government in the world over the last 30 years was the government of the People's Republic of China. So, we have from that an idea of the sort of republic that Paul Keating likes. So we're looking at really a, a much more authoritarian republic 
than the constitutional monarchy, the, the commonwealth that we have at the moment. And Australia should be very wary of making any constitutional change without being assured that this will improve the governance of Australia and not make things worse, not make things more authoritarian. Well, of course, Matt Keane only last week on Twitter came out and said once again that Australia needs an Australian head of state. So either he doesn't know his own politics, of which he is a part of, which is concerning to say the least, or he was being deceptive in the tweet that he put out trying to stir up trouble once again. But there's bad news for the Republican movement, and that is that the woke, which is the Meghan Markles of the world and this whole identity politics ideology, decided to go head-to-head with the monarchy last month and basically failed. They came off the worst for it. Meghan Markle tried to run the whole, we're so oppressed by this system that I decided to marry into by choice and this wealth and privilege has oppressed me. And the British public turned around and rejected her narrative and uh, all the polls are showing that the support for the Queen and for the monarchy and for even Kate and William, which is particularly important, has skyrocketed in the wake of Meghan Markle's little uh, Oprah interview. Is that a good sign for the monarchy or should we be wary about this battle between wokeism and tradition? I, I agree with you on that. I, I think they, they miscalculated on this. Firstly, anybody knows Anybody in the world knows that you don't wash your dirty linen in public. If you think your linen is dirty, don't wash it in public. And if you want to have a good family relations, you don't be treacherous about the family in a public interview. You don't say, oh, my father wouldn't receive my phone calls. Or that somebody said uh, something about the colour of the child, uh, which was inappropriate. But I'm not going to say who said it didn't reveal those that uh, had allegedly said this. And that's a very bad way to run a family. If you are publicly treacherous in relation to your family, it's not going to be good for family relations. There was one crucial thing in that interview, which Harry should have persuaded Meghan not to talk about. And this was this ridiculous proposition that young Archie didn't become a prince, possibly because of his colour. The fact is that this was decided by George V back in 1917. George V limited the number of potential princes and princesses in the royal family so that in the situation that Harry finds himself in relation to the Queen, he couldn't pass that on to his children, at least not until Charles becomes king. It wasn't because of Archie's colour. It was because of a decision taken by uh, the king in 1917. Now, the reason why, the reason why the children of William can become princes and princesses was a decision taken by Elizabeth. Elizabeth decided, obviously because her reign was much longer than is normal, she decided that it would be inappropriate not to pass on the title princes and princesses to the direct descendants. Well, that's what's uh, fascinating about that interview with Mar- Megan Markle is the American population, particularly Megan, were all in. They went all hot and heavy in the idea that they wanted to be normal people and a normal family and they didn't want all the accolades and they didn't like the monarchy. 
But really, when it came down to it, Megan was furious that her child was not directly a prince straight away and that she wasn't afforded the titles and the prestige that she thought would come with monarchy because the Americans have a view of monarchy, which simply isn't true. And the English public know that a monarchy is a place of service. You know, the monarch, like Queen Elizabeth, their life is one of devotion, tradition, and of upstanding morals and a service to the people. And as soon as Megan worked that out, she was she left. She was gone. And so I think it really it showed the divide between the two nations of how different American has America has become versus the type of um, Commonwealth idea that we have of duty, service, and tradition. Do you think that's going to get stronger? Because I'm seeing people looking up to the monarchy, almost desiring to keep that tradition and that continuation of our culture in a world that is being collapsed by identity politics and collectivism. I think that's very true. And if you go back to uh, to uh, the, the last opinion polls in Australia, they were published on Australia Day in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Those opinion polls showed a majority in favour of retaining the monarchy, which is superb given that during the referendum period, during the referendum campaign, uh, the opinion polls weren't so hot, but we still won the referendum. This is this shows a majority in favour of retaining the monarchy. The worst thing for the Republicans, the time bomb for the Republicans, the, the signal of doom for the Republicans was that the young people were the strongest supporters of the monarchy. Now, that is extraordinary. Naturally, it was played down by the media, but it was the most remarkable uh, result in an opinion poll. And there's a great, very great respect and interest by the young. They may not fully comprehend what is going on, but as in 1999, Australians have pretty good instincts about changing their constitution. And they won't change it flippantly just because politicians want to change it. And I think they have a high regard for the monarchy. You're right, it is now. The monarchy is now very much a monarchy of service. And uh, those monarchs who are not willing to be involved in service won't remain monarchs for long. We saw that with Edward VII. Edward VII certainly felt that he could not continue as monarch because uh, of rules in relation to marriage and so on. And we we inherited, we acquired a monarch who was a, a monarch who never expected to become king, but served his people fully, as did uh, as do, does the queen and the queen mother. The queen mother, when she made that famous statement about uh, the children being sent to Canada, it was said to her, well, London is now so dangerous. English children have been sent out of London. They've gone to the country. What about uh, your children? Will they... Will they be going to Canada, for example? And she said, no, they'll never leave without me. I'll never leave without the king. And the king will never leave London. So you had this marvelous statement of service. And that has continued. It goes right back before Victoria. And uh, it's been a, a feature of the royal family. And it is very much a... a uh, a system of service, e even well, in like, relation. Well, like it or not, the Queen is the world's most powerful woman and she devoted her life to serving the people, which is not quite the whole uh, activist 
narrative of how they want women to behave now, but it is a popular form of leadership for females to look up to in the whole culture. I mean, the Queen has respect because the way she's chosen to live her life is so at odds to the politicians we see today and their self-serving politics that people aspire to it. But I will give you a, a difficult question. Uh, do you think that uh, Prince Charles in particular, he has decided to go all in on the United Nations green energy political uh, money-making exercise of things like wind turbines and speaking at all these events, which is a politicised activity. It's not the terms of service that you'd normally see from a monarch staying out of politics. It is deliberately wading in, and I'm sure it was done to try and combat the rise of the left, hoping that they'd be friends with the left, but at the same time, you know, the left don't want a monarchy, so there's no point doing it. Are you worried that's going to isolate the people who would support the monarchy, or do you think they're just going to skip over Prince Charles and go straight to Kate and it'll all be fine? I wrote a piece about this. I I said that uh, this will probably attract people, some of some Republicans, but it wouldn't. He wouldn't lose any monarchists because they had more sense than to give up the monarchy because of what the Prince of Wales was saying. Now the Prince of Wales, Charles, has had strong opinions on a number of things. When it comes to uh, climate change, as they now call global warming, one of the problems which those who oppose global warming have, and, and Charles would no doubt say this, is the fact that both the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition in Britain support the, all of the all of the beliefs in global warming, but so does the uh, Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition of every realm, including Australia, which makes it difficult for those like myself, like you, who doubt the doctrine of global warming, the, the discredited theory of global warming. Uh, one of the problems is that uh, this is a view which is held on both sides of politics now. The um, only... let, me rephrase, let me rephrase it before we go off on a massive tangent. I think what I was getting at is if at the moment the monarchy is not a political figure, the monarchy is a, um, a mystic idea that sits above politics. But if, polit if the monarchy starts playing politics internally, even if it's popular politics, they risk making themselves nothing more than political figures. And as we all know, political figures can be disposed, can be replaced. Are you like my worry is that they are turning themselves into political figures rather than remaining above that game. I think Charles has made it clear that when he when and if he becomes king, that he will not be talking on anything like this, including even on architecture. But uh, the question is, should he be doing this as Prince of Wales? He's not part of the formal constitutional structure, but everybody knows he's next in line. And they're not going to change the succession. Only Charles could do that. He could say, I, I don't want to become king, but uh, I don't think he's going to do that. I think he will, if he, if he, pre if he does not predecease the queen, he will succeed. But when he is king, he will not be taking part in politics, but it is, it is something I think he should listen to. He should listen to people like you, 
and myself who would counsel him against this. It's not a good thing for him to be talking, even as, as the heir to the throne on matters political. When we were forming Australians of Constitutional Monarchy, one of the alternative names was leadership above politics. I think that's what the Crown does. It gives leadership above politics. I think you're right. It would be better if he did not speak on this, even though he probably thinks it's not political because nobody who advises him tells him not to do this. No minister is telling him not to do this in any realm or in the United Kingdom because they're all united on this. The one thing that I don't hear said about the monarchy very often is that in our system of four-year cyclic politics, which is a, a criticism of the West and democracy where we don't have any long-term politics because we're always changing our leaders, whereas a communist system has a permanent leader and can do long-term projects without interference. But the monarchy is something that gives our politics uh, length and endurance because we have the Queen who has seen prime ministers from Churchill onwards. She's seen the changes in our governance and she gives advice to politicians that is inspired by this longevity in the political system. Is that uh, important to have in a political system? Um, because if we, if we change to a, into a republic, we will lose that permanence that the Queen gives to our political system. I think you're absolutely right. The Crown is important because of the stability it demonstrates. And it's a stability which is not political, it's above politics. The last thing we'd want would be to have a political leader there permanently, as you have in a communist country. That produced Stalin, that produced uh, Lenin, they lasted until they, their lives ended, and that's not what you want. We can see that with Xi in China, he's going to last, he's being made effectively emperor for life. And, and that is not a good thing. Uh, and you get to the situation where in dictatorships they're frightened to give up power because they know if they give up power, the others will move against them. And this is highly undesirable. The Americans saw this too when they limited the presidential term to, four, to, two, year, to, to two terms, to four years. Because Roosevelt, they saw, had been in power too long and he was declining and he made, uh, he made concessions to Stalin which a younger Roosevelt probably would not have made. It is not good to have somebody in power for a long time. Yes, yeah, so in, in other words, Australia has somehow lucked in via its history and its birth to possibly the most stable political system available to civilization. We've tried to ask this question about how to govern ourselves many times through history, but we have landed with the best option and yet some people were trying to get rid of it for the pursuit of their own power, which is disappointing. Uh, but before we leave, I, I always ask one question at the end of Curtain Call, and it's a fun question, so feel free to have a go with it. If you could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think one of, the, one of the people I'm very interested in at the moment is G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I hadn't thought about it. I haven't given any consideration to this question in advance. But I, I wouldn't mind having dinner with him to find out about a few of the things that he said and to ask him why he said them and whether he in fact did say them. That would be an interesting one to have, but he wouldn't be the only one. Perhaps Oscar Wilde would be entertaining, I would think, because <laughs> he 
he sounds very amusing. You'd have yeah. a good laugh, a good drink, it'd be fun. Yes, well, when you, when you look at the cross-examination, the first part of the cross-examination, it just, it, re it reads wonderfully. And the man, the man was a wit uh, and a, a person who didn't need a script to deliver some wonderful lines. And he would have been very interesting, very amusing. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Curtain Call. It's a, it's a rising topic, this idea of monarchies and princes and princes, and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. So thank you for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all the podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.